Welcome to Wellversed, where we bring biblical principles of governance to governmental leaders and you. This is the Wellversed podcast. We're going to go to our next guest, Joseph Humeyer. Joseph, you already, you always, every time you come on, you sort of startle us with reality. Uh, your reports are thorough, and quite exhaustive, and and stunning. Uh, Mara, if you want to just take. If you want to say one phrase about him, now I want to jump right to Joseph to give a report from the southern border and Hezbollah and other terrorist activity taking place on our own southern border. Mario, anything you want to say about? Uh, yeah, Joseph's been a dear friend uh, actually for for many years, and uh, to me, he's one of the foremost experts in uh, Latin America uh, regarding CCP involvement, Hezbollah involvement, Russia, Iran, etc. He's been with us and. Uh, some of the most impactive broadcasts have been with Joseph. It's an honor to have him back. Joseph, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Folks, you may want to take notes, grab paper and pencil, because uh, this is a, a fire hydrant coming at you right now with information that's pretty powerful. Thanks, Joseph. Go for it. Uh, absolutely. First of all, um, thank you, Jim. Uh, thank you, Pastor Mario. It's it's great to be back with the World Prayer Network. It's uh, also great to see you guys, as although virtually, hopefully in person uh, soon. Um, uh, so let me give uh, a little bit of a prelude to what I'm going to talk about. Um, so 2024, you know, now we're all kind of fully immersed in the new year. Um, you know, I've always called it the year of chaos, uh, because this is going to be a very turbulent year. Uh, and that's not just for the United States, that's throughout the world. Uh, obviously we're seeing this most evident in the Middle East. Uh, Israel, I think is in the midst of a multi-pronged war, uh, both on their Southern border and the Northern border and throughout the entire uh, broader Middle East. Um, we're seeing uh, the Ukraine-Russia situation is, is continuing to, to persist and, and even to some elements escalate. Poland's continuing to be destabilized by the efforts of Russia and Belarus. Uh, and then we, we have the Taiwan election uh, that just took place, which kind of think more solidifies the, the Taiwan resistance towards uh, the annexation of their country by, by uh, mainland or communist China. So all those elements, and I'm going to go back to that towards the end, but I, I wanted to give that context and that prelude because what I'm going to talk to you a little bit about uh, with regards to both Hezbollah, our, our border, Latin America, oftentimes gets uh, excluded from the broader geopolitical picture uh, globally. And, and the argument that I'm going to make today to all of you uh, is that this is a key part of the geopolitical puzzle. This is a key element of what's taking place globally. Uh, and, and this is a fight that's getting be prepared to be take to the United States. So the fight's gonna come to us. Uh, we, 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 whether we want it, whether we're prepared for it, uh, whether, whether uh, we're going to engage or not, uh, our enemies and our adversaries are prepared to take the fight to us. And, and that's gonna happen, I think this year. Um, so uh, we have a podcast that just came out. Uh, you guys can, uh, we have a YouTube channel. I, I'm the executive director of a think tank called the Center for a Secure Free Society. Uh, if you put Secure Free Society on YouTube, you'll find our channel. And then the, the latest video is, is, is a podcast where I sat down with a good friend and a prominent expert as well named Todd Bensman. Uh, Todd has written a couple really best-selling books about the border crisis. He's probably one of the foremost authorities now on, on looking at the border. Uh, he used to work for the Counterterrorism and Intelligence Division of the Texas Department of Public Safety. Um, and he, and he, before that, he was an investigative journalist. He's traveled all over the world, namely in the Middle East. So he, he's kind of one of those post-9-11 reporters 
that then turned into an intelligence analyst uh, that's been focused on terrorism. And, and so I have an hour plus long conversation with Todd about terrorism on our southern border. Uh, if you look at just the data, and I think even the FBI has been very adamant about making this known, um, as has DHS, uh, we've had an unprecedented rise of suspected terrorists that have been encountered on our southern border. Those are the ones that we know about because they actually uh, arrived to the border through a port of entry and engaged with a, a board authority, whether it's Border Patrol, Customs, and Border Protection. Um, and that doesn't even include the ones we don't know about that are these part of these gotaways that are you know coming through the border that we don't necessarily have uh, our eyes or ears on. Um, and so I have this podcast. I referenced that to get into a little bit more of the depth. Uh, but basically, this uh, conversation has to manifest itself into something that we're talking a lot about when it comes to the Middle East, which is escalation, right? There's all this conversation about escalation in the Middle East. You have uh, uh, Hamas in its brutal terrorist attack against Israel on, on October 7th. You have Hezbollah consistently firing rockets into Israel uh, around the same time frame. And you have the Houthis uh, out of Yemen. Uh, looking at uh, seizing and, and attacking oil vessels throughout the Red Sea uh, and the Gulf of Oman. The common denominator on all that, not to mention the militias in Iraq that are attacking U.S. forces, the common denominator to all that is the Islamic Republic of Iran. Iran is essentially escalating its war uh, throughout the Middle East. They're preparing to essentially make their move against Israel. Now, in that, Iran is not a, a regional actor. Iran is a global actor. And Iran has always prepared for 40 years, for 40 plus years since the dawn of the 1979 revolution, has prepared their Latin America card for this exact moment. When they were going to attack Israel, and I mean like more than just uh, uh, an asymmetric attack, but more uh, a multidimensional attack as we're seeing today, uh, they always had a prepared a Latin American card to constrain the United States. Uh, and I'm gonna give you two data points that you guys need to know about that some of you might have heard, but maybe maybe some of you have not. Uh, about how Hezbollah is preparing to make these moves. And, and this is not uh, speculation or conjecture. These are actual uh, uh, arrests that have been made in uh, recent weeks uh, related to Hezbollah potentially plotting terrorist attacks in Latin America. For a long time, and you know, I've been working on this for, for 15 years, for a long time, there was a lot of uh, debate and discussion within the defense and intelligence community and law enforcement community in the United States about will Hezbollah ever carry out another attack similar to what they did in Argentina in the 90s uh, in Latin America. Again, uh, the uh, conventional wisdom for what it's worth in Washington and other places was uh, they will likely not do that because they're too interested in the financial uh, benefits that they receive from money laundering and illicit finance in Latin America. That's a lot of the same miscalculation that Israel in fact did about Hamas, thinking that Hamas was only interested in getting money and, and extortion of Israel and really wouldn't actually try to disrupt that money flow through a major terrorist attack as they shown to do on October 7th. Uh, that was the conventional wisdom in Washington on uh, Latin, Hezbollah in Latin America. It was Israel's miscalculation on Hamas. And uh, I think now we're starting to see this bubble up. Um, uh, shortly after, about a month after uh, Hamas attacked Israel on October 7th, and I, I think specifically it was on no November 8th, so a month and a day after, uh, the Brazilian federal police uh, arrested uh, a slew of individuals uh, that were uh, connected to Hezbollah, that were plotting a terrorist operation inside that country, which could arrange anything from targeted assassination of Jewish and Christian leaders to uh, uh, a terrorist attack on an institution or facility 
uh, in a public space. Um, they don't have exactly the, the identification of the target, but what they uh, saw was the recruitment that was happening uh, among these uh, individuals. There was a total of uh, four arrests, uh, two of which were arrested. Let me rephrase that. There was a total of six arrest orders, four of which were actually arrested, two of which which actually got away, and two of which uh, uh, were just suspected and being investigated. Uh, there's some elements of this uh, plot that actually I think are illuminating to what Hezbollah is currently doing in Latin America and how that's going to take it to our southern border, which I'm going to touch about in a second. But I think the most important thing here for right now uh, on Brazil is for the longest time, Brazil has denied that the, the Hezbollah activity, that they know that's happening inside their country, whether it's at the tri-border area uh, on the borders of Argentina and Paraguay, or whether it's in Sao Paulo or in Curitiba, or even in uh, Rio de Janeiro and Brasilia, they deny, they said, look, they're only here. This was told to me by a prominent Brazilian official more than a decade ago. He said, Joseph, listen, we know Hezbollah's in our country, but we're a hub, not a target. They're not targeting Brazil. They're targeting America. They're targeting Israel. And we prefer not to ruffle those feathers because we don't want to become a target. Well, that's only true until it's not. Uh, and, and that was a very, I, th I think, very, very kind of naive thing to say, especially if you know the, the modus operandi of Hezbollah. Uh, and so uh, I think this uh, plot has now uh, elevated that, that threat inside Brazil. Uh, Brazilian authorities are taking this very seriously uh, because it, it has a lot of elements that directly connect to uh, the leadership in, in Lebanon uh, of Hezbollah. The second plot happened more recently on January 2nd, where the Argentine, Argentina federal police arrested uh, also four individuals, uh, two of which were uh, specifically being focused on because these two individuals uh, arrived to Argentina from outside the country, uh, coming from Colombia with either Venezuelan or Colombian documents saying that they were from those countries and, and are suspected to be fraudulent documents, meaning they're, they were Lebanese or Syrian uh, nationals that were using false documents to come into the country and had uh, uh, basically were casing uh, a part of Buenos Aires uh, near the Israeli embassy. Uh, just to give some context, months prior to that, in October of last year, there was an Iraqi national that was doing something similar in terms of surveillance on the Israeli embassy, which caused the Israeli embassy to create an alert. So there's a little bit of context of this uh, that's already flapping, not to mention Argentina already knows a lot about Iran and Hezbollah and, and the terrorist attempts because they were bombed by them very significantly in the 1990s, as I mentioned before. So what? let me give you the so what of what this case is being, because there's actually an effort right now by media in both of these countries and other places to diminish this, to make this sound like these are exaggerations by their federal police, or these are kind of alarmist actions by, by certain governments that are trying to create a false narrative. Uh, that is a Hezbollah lobbying campaign to essentially whitewash uh, their image and project themselves as to be victims rather than to be the perpetrators of what could be a potential terrorist attack. Now, let me be very specific. I think Hezbollah isn't actually, in these two cases, preparing a specific terrorist attack. I think they were testing the mechanism, meaning they were starting to test Argentine security forces, test Brazilian security forces to see how prepared Latin America is, where the vulnerabilities exist for something they're preparing to do throughout the region, which is going to lead to the border. So the big, um, the big so what, the big takeaway from these cases, and I've spoken to... Uh, 
counterterrorism officials in both countries and other neighboring countries that are looking at this because there was alerts that went on in other countries, but these are actual arrests that were made. Uh, and the big takeaway from this is there's a, a modality that's involved in these arrests that shows that Hezbollah may have evolved beyond anything that we actually thought that they were doing in Latin America, even for people that have followed it as closely as I have. That number one modality is this is the first time that law enforcement in Latin America has seen Hezbollah start to recruit outside of the Lebanese diaspora. The people that they were recruiting, whether it was in Brazil or in Argentina, were endogenous Brazilians and Argentines that were tied to organized crime, meaning that they were looking at hiring hitmen from Brazil to potentially carry out these assassinations or Argentine actors to potentially carry out the surveillance. Why is that important? Because over the last several years, we've had very high profile targeted assassinations against Latin American prosecutors and even a presidential candidate. Some of these names you might have heard of, uh, Alberto Nisman of Argentina, special prosecutor for the Amia terrorist attack, uh, was assassinated uh, in 2015. Uh, Marcelo Pecci, a prosecutor from Paraguay, who was investigating Hezbollah's money laundering apparatus in the tribal area, was assassinated while he was on his honeymoon in near Cartagena, Colombia in 2021 or 22. Um, Fernando Villavicencio, who was a presidential candidate for Ecuador, who was assassinated in Quito, Ecuador, while he was on the presidential campaign uh, in August of last year, the common denominator of all these cases are these are individuals that were investigating Iran and Hezbollah Yet in the actual investigations of their assassinations, you don't see a mention of Hezbollah. You see the mention of a lot of Latin American criminal organizations, the PCC from Brazil, uh, the uh, uh, Oficina de Envigado of Colombia, uh, and other element, criminal elements. So why do I give you all that context? Because what we're looking at with Hezbollah on the southern border is Hezbollah now beginning to use criminal organizations, namely the Mexican cartels, and also a Venezuelan transnational criminal organization called the Train from Aragua. In Spanish is called the Tren de Aragua. There's two reports that just came out, uh, I think the, not yesterday, but the day before on Spanish language media on Telemundo and Univision that for the first time has documented that this Venezuelan transnational criminal organization, Train from Aragua, which specializes in human trafficking and human smuggling, is now present in Chicago, New York, uh, Houston, and Miami. Uh, they're present now in the United States. Uh, that is an organization that's in Venezuela. That's, it was a uh, criminal transnational criminal organization in Venezuela that we suspect is, is a cutout for Hezbollah. So I give you that context because as I mentioned in the beginning of this conversation, uh, this fight is going to come to us. The, what's happened on the U.S. southern border over the last uh, few years is nothing short of, uh, of astonishing in terms of uh, how crazy uh, vulnerable it has exposed our country. Uh, you guys are following some of the news from Texas today. Uh, the Texas governor, Greg Abbott, has basically put a stand up against the Biden administration uh, because uh, for not complying with the constitutional mandate to protect the U.S. southern border, and Texas has deployed its security forces, Department of Public Safety, its National Guard, and its border authorities to protect that border, uh, and that's putting up a standoff uh, between the state uh, and, and the federal government. Uh, this is something that's going to continue to persist because border security is national security. 
Uh, I mentioned the terrorists that are coming across the border, but it's not just the terrorists. You know, there's over 25,000 Chinese nationals, which 90% uh, of them are uh, fighting age uh, adult males uh, that are coming across the southern border. Uh, there's a slew of Russians that have come across the southern border, again, you know, with uh, military age males that have come through the California border. Uh, and so what I'm increasingly concerned about in 2024, and I call it the year of chaos, and what I'm increasingly concerned about isn't just terrorism per se, it's all acts of terrorism, subversion, sabotage, in any way that can actually disrupt the United States in an important year, which is an election year, uh, to either uh, dissuade, uh, to um, um, uh, disaffect, or uh, to divide, or, or even to uh, create scenarios where you can suspend uh, elections. Uh, and so this is, is something that we're now starting to take very close concern and look at. Let me pivot that to my last point, which you know I started the conversation talking about global conflict. And, and there's a common denominator, well, there's a few common denominators on what's happened with uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, uh, Iran's uh, asymmetric assault on Israel, uh, the impending conflict and annexation of Taiwan, uh, and what's going to happen in Latin America. The common denominator is at least two uh, that are easily identifiable. The first is uh, they all involve the same alliance, meaning Russia, China, and Iran are behind each one of those conflicts. It's not just Russia that uh, took uh, invaded Ukraine. It was Russia with Iranian armament, with Chinese financial uh, uh, support that was able to carry out that invasion. It's not just Iran that's attacking Israel. It's Iran with uh, Russian propaganda and Chinese uh, leverage that's uh, making those attacks. And the same will happen if something happens to Taiwan early, uh, later this year. The conflict that's at equal to those major conflicts that I just mentioned that's going to take place in Latin America this year is Guyana. This is something that needs to be on everybody's radar uh, because I imagine many people don't follow Guyana, but this is the low hanging fruit for Venezuela's uh, beginning of their conquest of the rest of Latin America through armed actions. Uh, in September of last year, uh, Nicolas Maduro uh, traveled to Beijing, to China, and he, uh, in fact, Xi Jinping missed the G20 because of his meeting with Maduro. Uh, and, and he spoke about, they signed a big, what they call an all-weather strategic agreement. Uh, and when he came back, as soon as he came back, I think it was about September 10, September 12, around that time frame, he uh, initiated uh, both a uh, political campaign against uh, Guyana and initiated a pre military preparation to uh, invade Guyana. The uh, political uh, campaign was held through a national referendum because this is essentially a, a ace in the sleeve on the international community and a checkmate against his opposition. Uh, checkmate against his opposition because nine out of 10 Venezuelans did not say 10 out of 10 Venezuelans, all actually believe that two thirds of Guyana is actually their territory. It's called the Esequibo. Uh, they believe that they were never properly represented in international arbitration. Uh, and just so you have some context, there's a more than 100-year-old border dispute between Guyana and Venezuela that goes all the way back to uh, the 19th century. 
uh, and uh, Guyana wasn't founded as, a, Guyana used to be a British colony and it wasn't made independent until the 1960s. And then at that point, there was a, a dividing line that was established through international arbitration that said, this is Guyana and this is Venezuela. Venezuela uh, never acknowledged that that was uh, legitimate. Um, but the real impetus of what's happening here is in 2015, Guyana made the largest oil discovery in, in the 21st century. They found 11 billion barrels of oil deposits in its territorial waters. Uh, so that's a major reason why this is going to be taking place. Uh, ExxonMobil is one of the major concessions of that oil, as is China. But going back to what Maduro has been doing is he started to create a national referendum to essentially basically get permission from the Venezuelan people to say that this is our territory. It belongs to Venezuela. You support me in my conquest to take it over. Uh, and that's a checkmate against the opposition because I, essentially most of the opposition that is lo looking to try to either supplant or replace Maduro is going to have to kind of agree with that. In fact, Juan Guaido, who is, you know, the opposition up until recently and who was the interim president before, uh, Juan Guaido, the first agreement that he signed with Nicolas Maduro when they were negotiating in Mexico was an agreement that said the Esequibo, two-thirds of Guyana, it belongs to Venezuela. Uh, and, then Venice, and then Maduro walked away from the negotiation because that's all he really wanted. And I say it's an ace in the sleeve on the international community because this is, we're living in a time, unfortunately, and we, we, this is evident with Israel, what's happening with Israel, what's happening with Ukraine. We're living in a time where there is no deterrence for these authoritarian actions. You know, it's, it's essentially there's a moral hazard impending throughout the world. And, and, and when you incentivize bad behavior, you will get more bad behavior. And we've incentivized bad behavior on all of our adversaries. Um, that, you know, ordinarily, Venezuela does not have the military readiness to carry out anything like this. If, if we had leadership in the world by democratic forces, including and most importantly in the United States, uh, they would not attempt such a brazen move. Uh, their military is, is not prepared. But in, in the absence of a deterrence, uh, even uh, very aggressive actions that seem to be uh, high risk uh, become more plausible. Uh, that's what uh, happened to Israel. That's what happened to Ukraine. That's what's about to happen uh, to Guyana. Um, and I, I kind of like wrap this up with, you know, this uh, dimension of these conflicts, what this is really about, what, you know, what this is driving us towards is... Um, economic warfare, because the other element that's the common denominator of all those conflicts that I mentioned is the second order economic effects. In the case of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the main global effect in the terms of the global economy was food insecurity. The 12% of the calories consumed worldwide, particularly in the developing world, come from the fertilizer and wheat produced in Ukraine and Russia. When the supply chains were disrupted, food insecurity, food prices, food inflation went through the roof coming out of a pandemic, mostly in Africa, also in Latin America. The uh, implication of what's happening in the Middle East, whether it's Hamas, uh, as war in Gaza over with Israel, or the Houthis in their war against pretty much uh, everybody in their neighborhood, uh, is, the, is, is, is bottlenecking two strategic choke points uh, within the Red Sea, which is uh, the Mandible Strait and the Suez Canal. Uh, and that's already hurting uh, global shipping and hurting the price of oil and the price of petroleum. And if China makes this move on Taiwan, uh, that will 
uh, disrupt the supply chain of semiconductors, which are used for major electronics. My point, and, and in Guyana, will be to choke up the Panama Canal, which is 7% of global shipping and 35% of U.S. export and commerce. So that my, my wrapping up my final point is that this is their attempt to bring down the world. Uh, there's, you know, China is done growing. Uh, Russia that never actually grew. Uh, Iran has always been a failed state since the 1979 Iranian Revolution. They have no ability to take over the world through conventional means. Uh, there's only two ways, project military strength and grow your economy. Neither of those are going to happen with any of those authoritarian actors. But there's two ways to take over the world. One is to grow, the other is to suppress. If you suppress the rest of the world, you no longer look so weak. And that is, I believe, the strategy that these actors have taken uh, to suppress the world uh, through uh, conflict, uh, through war, uh, and through uh, massive effects on our economy and, and, and attacks on national sovereignty. That's why the southern border is so important. Here in Washington, you sometimes have uh, uh, food fights in the Congress between the border hawks and the defense hawks. But in reality, they're fighting the same fight. Those that want to provide support to Ukraine or Israel uh, in their war uh, are, are part of the same fight of those that want to provide uh, more border enforcement and border security. You, we, we're not going to be able to help our allies if our border continues to remain uh, open and, 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 and vulnerable. Uh, but at the same time, we need to support our allies if we want to actually control our southern border. So these are not mutually exclusive things. Uh, and, and in fact, I think we're going to need to learn to basically unify those elements if we're going to have a shot at winning this up upcoming global conflict. So, Jim, I'll, I'll wrap it up with that. I don't know if we have q and I'm happy to stay on a little bit if we need to want to do some questions, but um, I'll stop talking there. Well, you live in the U.S. You're an expert, obviously, in a lot of countries, but particularly Latin, Latin America. Uh, what we hear reports of a quote black swan moment uh, before the election, suspending the election. You used that phrase a little bit ago. Can you expand on a little bit more what you're hearing at our own U.S. election? Are we going to have an election in November? Okay, so you know it's hard for me to to predict things, but so I'll give you what my concerns are. These, these, you know, you know, in the intelligence community, everything's measured through probabilities, right? No, there's no absolutes, not 100% this is gonna happen or 0% that's gonna happen. You know, they give, uh, you know, uh, you know, 50% probability, 60% probability. So I, I would say anything that's above a 50% probability is a concern because it's no longer just a hypothesis or it's no, no longer just pure speculation. It's something that has some uh, empirical evidence that suggests that this may happen or you have patterns that suggest that this could happen. So what I'm concerned about in terms of things that could take place inside the United States, this is why I mentioned the Tren de Aragua, this is why I mentioned Hezbollah, because these aren't, these aren't uh, just local gangs and you know, small criminals. These are major transnational criminal organizations that have networks. And what I'm concerned about is not necessarily a 9-11 type event. That's always concerning and you can never discount that. But the reason we haven't had a 9-11 is because we're being increasingly prepared for those kind of attacks. Um, what I'm concerned about is more acts of subversion. And, and I'll explain what I mean by that. You know, we, you know, if we think about it, let me use this as an example. You know, what, in my experience, in my kind of observation, what, what terrorist attack drove the most hysteria over a prolonged period of time? I don't actually think it was 9-11 because 9-11 was a shock and awe. It hit us it, everybody's life changed. We all got 
alarmed uh, and, and it led to some decisions afterward. But we didn't really live in this panic of fear for a prolonged period of time. In fact, I think the week after, America was angry and ready to fight back. But where I saw prolonged periods of panic and fear, and maybe some of you heard of this, if it was the case of the DC sniper. Do you remember this? So, I'll, I'll, so I can't remember the exact year. It was more than 10 years ago, uh, maybe 15 years ago. But there was a, a, a former veteran uh, of the armed forces, our army, that basically for a period of almost two months was uh, selectively and somewhat randomly uh, shooting innocent bystanders in public spaces throughout the DC metropolitan area in gas stations, coming out of shopping malls. But it happened so frequently that it pretty much drove this entire area in panic. I, we had people that were doing low crawls to basically pump their gas and then low crawling into their car. I'd never seen that before. And I give that as an example. And this was basically a, a former veteran that became radicalized through, through jihadist propaganda, recruited his son, radicalized his son, and they're doing this from the trunk of his car with a sniper rifle. I use that as an example because we are not prepared for low-tech subversive actions, things that could poison our water supply, our food supply, corrupt our electrical grid, take down our, our uh, telecommunications infrastructure. These things don't require just EMPs or big sophisticated cyber tech. If you have trained subversive agents with radicalized elements like this DC sniper or other elements, you have enough to create that level of chaos. And so what I'm concerned with the Southern border, especially in the last year, some of these cases that we've looked at, these aren't like your typical terror jihadist that wants to do a suicide bombing. These are like intelligence agents that are trained and knowledgeable about how to create these networks that will carry out subversive actions with high levels of plausible deniability. Oftentimes, by the time you figure out who's actually attacking you, it's too late. So those are the kind of things that I'm worried about. And I'll be very specific, I mean, because we were on the call with, with you know, friends. And I, I'm, I'm worried about chemical. Uh, um, um, you know, we, you know we, 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 we drill a lot uh, with, you know, potential chemical attacks. But if you look at the transcourse of time, whether it's whether it's nerve agents, whether it's gas agents, uh, we've seen our enemies experimenting higher with chemical warfare. Uh, they, they assassinated opposition with nerve agents. Uh, that's North Korea, that's Russia. Uh, they've used uh, uh, gas agents on their own populations, that's Syria and Iran. Uh, so uh, I'm concerned that that kind of chemical warfare is something that can be used uh, and be easily used to uh, uh, poison our food and water supply. So I, I don't wanna go too much further because I'll get into some speculative territory, but I, I do say that these are things that uh, not, even a few years ago would have been considered not very plausible, but things have changed so drastically in, in the last three and a half years. Are you able to speak at all on the issue of the standoff you refer to between the state of Texas and the federal government? <clears throat> what, what, do you know legally what, could Texas protect its own borders, for example? Oh, what legal capacity do they have? And where is this headed? Where is this headed? The Texans are pretty independent. They're proud of the fact they were once a separate republic. I used to live in Texas. And many of them want to go back to being a separate republic from the Union. Um, or some of them do. What, what, where are we headed with that standoff? So th th this, I believe, is something that our founders always envisioned. You know, there's going to come a time when states and their uh, rights are going to be challenged by a federal government that's superseding its authorities. 
I think that this moment is taking place. Uh, the uh, federal government, and, and I don't want to like, I have a lot of friends in the federal government. I don't want to like blanket statement them, but essentially it's not so much just the agencies. It's, it's a leadership. The leadership of our federal agencies going up to the White House all the way to DHS and, 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 and others are, are negligent to say it you know, nicely on what's happening on our border. They have not applied the proper resources. They don't have applied the proper command and control. They don't have applied the, the proper uh, augmentation to deal with this, despite multiple, multiple requests by the states. The way our system is supposed to work is the federal government's a force multiplier of states on protecting their territory. It's not supposed to supersede their authority to protect their territory. But in this case, they're not only not pro providing that support, or they're actually getting in the way. And, and every time the, the Texas, for instance, has tried to do its uh, rights, its constitutional right to protect its border, they've been sued by the federal government. And so I believe that Texas has all the, I'm not a constitutional lawyer, so I'm not gonna pretend like I know all the elements of the law. But what I will say is my understanding is Texas has all the uh, constitutional right to protect the Southern border uh, and in fact, I think it's uh, an as a as a element of beyond just Texas protecting its state. This is U.S. national security. I mean that that part of the border, the Rio Grande Valley, that part that stretch of the border is perhaps the most vulnerable. But I will say this: Texas has actually done a better job of, at, at containing some of that. Is not 100% working, and like I mentioned, they're having a lot of obstacles with the federal government. But a lot of the balloon effects are already taking place, and that's moving to Arizona. Uh, that's uh, a lot of that's moving over to Arizona, and, and I'm really worried about Arizona, really, because Arizona is completely wide open. The cartels are moving a lot of their tech in terms of their drones and all their delivery systems over to Arizona. And there's elements of the, you know what I was describing with these big international actors, China, Russia, and Iran, that are already pre-positioned inside Mexico in Sonora, which is the state under Arizona. Uh, so this is going to be complex, it, 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 but I think Texas is doing the right thing. Uh, I like that there's state, other states, Florida in, in particular, that's providing support to Texas. I think that's how our country has been designed, that states help each other uh, and to rein in uh, uh, overreach by the federal government. Um, and, and I think that this is hopefully going to become uh, something that will be resolved uh, sooner than later. I know that I, you know, just by watching polls, that border security immigration has now surpassed the economy as a major issue for the election. And so I think that, you know, we start this in New Hampshire. I think that more and more people are going to be worried. Uh, just so you know, the border issue isn't now just the border. You know, all these migrants have been shuttled all over the the the, the country. I mean, that's, the, and I mentioned the train de Aragua. The big report that came out was in Chicago. Like they found the, like there's a direct pipeline that goes from Venezuela to Mexico, to Brownsville, Texas, to Chicago, Illinois, run by uh, charities and NGOs that are moving these migrants, and in that route is coming these criminal organizations. And you know, I know people aren't as scared of this group because they haven't heard of it. They've heard of the Mexican cartels, the Jalisco and Sinaloa. But just, you know, the Tren de Aragua in Chile, you know, because before this came north, this was invading all of South America and just created all kinds of problems down there. In Chile, the Tren de Aragua kidnaps police officers. It, it, it assassinates police officers. Uh, they're, they, they, and the thing that I, I point to them a lot because they don't get involved in drug trafficking. Their specialty is human smuggling, human trafficking, sex trafficking. That's what they specialize in. And they're no longer in Venezuela. They're actually not even a problem in Venezuela anymore. Maduro exported them. 
and now they're all over. Uh, they're in eight countries in the hemisphere, including the United States. So, so I'll, I'll say that about the Texas standoff. Um, Mario, what yes. questions do you have? Um, how do you see this play out in terms of the timing of a potential terrorist uh, attack within our own uh, shores? Um, last program you had mentioned um, Russia, China looking at the vulnerabilities of the Biden administration and when they would trigger something this year. Yeah, I mean, I think this is the window. Um, I don't see, you know, so like the the general, like China's the big, the big geopolitical actor. Russia and Iran, in many respects, have to work a little bit along China's calendar because China has both the means and the intent to change global uh, global affairs and international order. So China's, all, we've always worked with China, the known China's calendar, which is 2049, which is their 100 year anniversary uh, of, the, of the Communist Party, uh, 2030, which is what they've documented as when they want to be the global leader in terms of uh, GDP. Uh, and then 2025, which is when they had said they're going to have already reunification, what they call with uh, Taiwan. Um, and so if we go off of that calendar, then we kind of already know which direction this is going to move and what time frame. The problem I have with that calendar is that's the one we know. That's the one like that the Defense Department, everybody's been preparing for. Well, if you're China and you know, and you actually put this out and you know that that's the calendar that your adversaries are working on, then why don't you mess around with the dates? You know, So 2024 to me seems more operative than 2025 because 2024 is the year in which anything could change. Not China nor nobody really knows what's going to happen in November 2024. We don't even know, like we were just talking a second ago, if we're going to actually have the election. I hope we do. But things can, you know, crazy things can happen. But I know that China's not going to waste an opportunity like this. Well, I've, I don't think I've ever seen in, in my adult life uh, a moment of U.S. weakness uh, that's parallel to today. You know, I wasn't around in 1970 to know if Jimmy Carter was worse, but uh, I, I've not seen this. I've not seen this. I, I mean, when you know, when President Biden came into office, and I don't want to make this partisan at all, but when President Biden came into office, he inherited a, a professional military fighting force. I mean, we that that fought in Iraq, that fought in in Afghanistan, that were ready to continue to take the fight. Uh, and now, what he turned that is in terms of a military force that's uh, uh, demoralized uh, after Afghanistan, uh, a military force that's uh, overworked and under, underfunded uh, with all the cuts that they've done on the defense defense budgets, and a, a military force that's underprepared for the nature of the conflicts that's gonna be taking place. So uh, in many respects, I think that our enemies uh, will not let this opportunity go to waste. Venezuela is a good catalyst for that because Venezuela, is, of all these adversaries, they're the weakest, like in terms of conventional strength. Like if we, if we mock the Russian army when they invaded Ukraine, wait till you see how bad news bears Venezuela is going to look when they try to do any kind of military operations. But if no one's going to stop them, then they really have nothing to lose. And the Guyanese don't really have an active, they have a defense force, but it's 2,000 people. It's the size of a battalion. I, I speak with the Guyanese military all the time. Uh, they're single-handedly not prepared to defend themselves. They never envisioned this situation. Uh, and up until a couple of years ago, I think they were a bit in denial that this was actually going to take place. But given the state of affairs in the world today, I believe that Maduro thinks that he has a, a carte blanche to do this. 
Uh, a matter of fact, the Biden administration just lifted sanctions on them uh, or you know, eased sanctions on, on their oil. So, that, you know, they're getting more money. They're regrouping, they're rearming. Uh, Iran just continues to send more armaments to them. And, and, and I, I just don't see them wasting this opportunity because if uh, there's a change in administration into 2025, uh, they're going to have to reset the battlefield because things could go 180 degrees in a different direction. And they know that. And they know that. And they will prepare for that. Uh, but but uh, they have to capitalize on that now. And so it, 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 if, uh, you know, whoever the presumptive nominee uh, from the Republican Party, if they come into office in 2025, they're going to inherit a situation that's drastically more dangerous and unstable than 2017. Uh, it, 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 we will probably already be in several conflicts by that time. Um, what, how would this play out? What would CCP do? You said there's 25,000 uh, immigrants of uh, military age, the a surveillance balloon. They have police, uh, Chinese police stations within our own borders. What would be your guess of how this would play out if, if China wanted to do something before our elections or before January 25? Yeah, so as I was mentioning before, I mean, I'm, I'm very concerned about uh, subversive actions inside the United States, anything that drives division. This is what, you know, this is what they want. You know, that was what people mi mi missed about Russia's role in the 2016 election. They didn't care if it was Trump or Hillary. What they wanted was uh, Americans to fight each other. And they, what they wanted was to distrust the entire system. Uh, and, and frankly, you know, a lot of the corruption that happens inside the United States aided and abetted that. Uh, because they're the ones that are willing and dealing and making our system uh, le less less solvent and secure. And so whatever action that could drive the most division is most likely what's going to take place. Um, I'm worried about subversive actions because the level of panic and chaos is what usually polarizes the environment. That's what COVID was really the effect of it. COVID's effect was the polarization of the populations globally. It, the, the, the lasting effect of it was the global economy. Uh, so I think that that's essentially the, the 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 trend that we're going to continue to see, and in terms of the border, um, I, I almost guarantee if things start to bubble up inside the United States, a lot of that will be because of people that have crossed the southern border in the last two years, in the last two because you know there's always been the, the mass immigration on the border has been incrementally increasing over you know several years, but really in the last 2022 and 2023 we started seeing a different demographic, a different composition of who is coming. Like those Chinese nationals, they didn't come in 2021. They started trickling in 2022. They exploded in 2023. And the Venezuelans that are coming now in 2023 are different than the Venezuelans that you see in Miami and other places. They're a different class, different breed that are coming out. A lot of them are coming from the prisons. So I think that's the kind of thing that we're concerned about. And I'll add one more element. You know, I talked a lot about economic warfare. You know, this eventually, and I don't think this will happen in 2024, but this eventually is going to move towards the Panama Canal. Uh, that's the strategic choke point in the Western Hemisphere. That's the that's the Strait of Hormuz for us. And that's what, if you can, and you don't need to attack it necessarily, if you just bottleneck it. The canal is already having problems because they have a drought in Panama. And and that it's a high canal, so it's actually fed by lakes. The drought doesn't allow the water levels to rise so that the canal can open for sustained period of times. So we've already had bottlenecks that are happening on both sides. If you add conflict, like what could happen in Guyana and the Caribbean, you will end up choking that canal. One day that that canal is shut is in the billions of dollars of loss in revenue for the United States. So these are the kind of things that we're looking at that I think that could, I don't think that'll happen 2024. That 
could happen as soon as 2025. Uh, but I think that the preparation for that will happen this year. And, and I think, you know, unfortunately, I think there's something could happen in the United States. Um, my last question relates to the war in Gaza right now. Um, Biden administration pressuring Israel not to complete the work that it needs to with Hamas. Do you think it's going? Uh, they're going to pressure Israel to stop the war so it looks like it's a win for Biden? And um, or will, could it increase with uh, greater activity uh, from Hezbollah? Yeah, I think that's the big one. I mean, I think you know Hamas is a preparatory action. I think the Houthis are a preparatory action. I think the big one's Hezbollah. You know, has and I think Israel knows this. I mean, Israel from day one after the Hamas attack, and one of the first things that I responses I got from our friends in Israel uh, when we were talking about responses to, to to what happened in Gaza was, yes, we're going to attend to that, but we have to be cautious and we have to be vigilant about our northern border. Like they know that that's that's where the real conflict could take place. Uh, I think Hezbollah is increasing uh, its uh, aggressions on their northern border. And um, I believe that they're going to make a move at some point. The Latin American terrorist plots that I mentioned in Brazil and Argentina, I thought I think were preparatory actions to be able to carry out uh, actions in 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 the event of that war. Uh, and, and our and, and our friends in Latin America, or the authorities in particular that are looking at these things, are very aware of that. Because uh, the bottom line on both of those cases is the people that were arrested, they were low hanging fruit. That they, they, they were expendable to Hezbollah. Hezbollah didn't really care if they get arrested or don't get arrested. But what Hezbollah learned by carrying out those plots was they learned the reactions and the capabilities of the security forces of those countries. Where, where, where they, can they uh, target? Where can they maneuver uh, that these countries aren't prepared for? Very similar to how they did AMIA. When they, before they did the AMIA attack, there was four terrorist plots uh, in 1989, 90, and 91, prior to 92, when they blew up the, the embassy and then in 94 in the Army Culture Center. So this is, uh, I think the authorities are now starting to realize that this is getting much and much more serious. And uh, what I try to remind our, remind our friends in Israel is, um, it's not just the targets on Israel, the homeland, it's targets on Jewish communities worldwide. And, and we need to protect our, our Jewish brothers and sisters because they're at the front lines of this. They're always being targeted uh, by, not just by Hezbollah, but namely by Hezbollah uh, around the world. And, and, and I'm, you know, the work I do, we focus a lot on Latin America, and uh, you know those threats on and while well, Brazil and Argentina didn't materialize, and I I, I I I have my suspicion that they never meant to materialize. That those were more warning signs, but but uh, it's it's definitely put us on alert down there. So the, if there is an increase uh, in the war with Hezbollah, that would most likely be a trigger for Hezbollah terrorist cells here in the United States and Latin America. Correct in the entire Western Hemisphere. Yeah. Back to you, Jim. Thank you so much. Absolutely, Joseph. Maureen. Yep. Well, it's pretty pretty sobering. Uh, we're all. World Prayer Network family, we are the World Prayer Network family. We hear reports like this, which I think have a high credibility. It reminds us what we need to do. We need to pray. The event we're having in Washington, D.C. next Wednesday, January, a week from uh, week of the day, January 31st, 7.30 in the morning, is the National Gathering for Prayer and Repentance. It sure appears to me our nation has moved well beyond the issue of just are we under discipline. <clears throat> it would seem to me that we're in the precursors of we're a nation under judgment. Have we deserved it? Well, of course we have. We killed 66 million babies. Uh, and what have we done to the definition of marriage? So consequently, uh, we're facing some huge challenges. Every one of you know that. 
it would seem to me that the only thing, the only answer for us is to repent before a holy and just God. So I invite you to listen online and participate with us. It's, it begins at 7.30 in the morning, East Coast time. I realize those of you that are where, where I am in California, before 4.30 in the morning. I don't know if it's going to be just slightly delayed. It could be a little bit delayed from that. Uh, <clears throat> maybe, I don't know for sure. But uh, you can go on our website right now and sign up to receive the information on that. And we'll give you information we know so you can watch it. And that would be going to wellburstworld.org. Wellburstworld.org. Scroll down on the National Gathering for Prayer and Repentance. And then you'll find a place to register for information to be sent to you for the live stream. We have uh, quite a few members of Congress who will be coming, leading prayer. And you may remember that Mike Johnson, a congressman from Louisiana, helped me start this one year ago. And Speaker Mike Johnson will be obviously at this event again, and he'll be leading in prayer as well as reading scripture. Tony Perkins and the FRC co-host this event with, with me and with Wellburst. And in addition to that, there'll be people from all over the world, quite a few European nations, some Latin American nations, some members of parliament, uh, some members of the European parliament, more than just from their country, they're members of the entire European parliament that meets in Brussels. And, and so they will be there praying and repenting uh, for their respective countries. Then we'll have part two, which will be an emphasis on Israel, how to stand with Israel. And on that one, folks, you're going to hear some reports on Israel that have not been publicly talked about. We've covered the red heifer story, and many people have. But we're going to go into the land where the cleansing ceremony would take place. First time in 2,000 years, Numbers chapter 19. Talk about the land. That'll be talked about there. Then just something that's developed quite recently is resources for the third temple. Uh, that ties into 1 Kings chapter 10. It's quite shocking to hear this, but what God has opened up recently, it's like he's revealing an awful lot recently in preparation for the third temple. What does that mean for us? Well, the Messiah. And then we'll he be hearing about the artifacts uh, from Bethlehem, from the birthplace of Yeshua, of Jesus, and that are in the U.S. and the story of that. Again, first time publicly for that to be discussed or talked about. Then we'll hear from a member of the Knesset. And then we'll hear from Dominique Bierman as we finish, wrap up the day. It's going to be a powerful day. We encourage you to go to wellversedworld.org. This is the National Gathering for Prayer and Repentance. And there, sign up to receive information about the live stream so you can watch it with us. That's one morning. We're going to encourage you to get up early. If you can't get up early, I'm asking them if they possibly could run it. It's a, quite a few hours if they could run it that Wednesday night and perhaps the following Sunday night or whatever. So you'll be able to see it again. It'll be worth watching more than once quite candidly. My, my appeal is on this issue. We repent before a holy and just God asking for mercy when we certainly deserve judgment. That to me is the key to everything we have just heard. I think the report is highly credible as we take it seriously. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please read the show notes for additional details if you would like a copy of the book or resources mentioned. Remember that WellVersed is a 501c3 tax-deductible nonprofit organization. We rely on your support and partnership. Don't forget to hit subscribe to keep up to date with our latest episodes. Leave us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too.
Thank you for listening to the Well-Versed Podcast. For more information, please go to www.wellversedworld.org.